Pod here. This is a special episode of The Leadership Diet. We have arrived at the end of the year, the year being 2020, and we've also arrived at the end of season one of The Leadership Diet. This podcast is only four months old. I started it as a passion project during COVID, but it has expanded and amplified way bigger than I could have imagined what a season one it has been. We are now listened to and downloaded in over 15 countries. We have been ranked at in the top 65 podcasts in Australia and the top 100 in Denmark, of all places. People listen to this podcast in the UK, in the US, India, Singapore, South Korea, France, Mozambique, Japan, UAE, Denmark and Germany, amongst other countries. So we absolutely appreciate all of you who have shared, downloaded and listened to the last 15 episodes. It has been a great season one, primarily because we have been very fortunate in having extraordinary, interesting and generous guests on the show who have shared their own journeys, their insights with a degree of intimacy and vulnerability. And because of that, I've decided to put an end of season one highlight reel or summary, if you'd like to call it that, as the final episode for the year. So this is not a highlight reel in terms of the best of episodes because they were all great episodes on many different levels, but six different themes emerged as regular themes throughout my conversations. So I thought I would summarize the season one across those different themes. And also those things were regular sources of feedback from many people who emailed us or contacted us through the website or through various podcasting hosts and to share their feedback on various episodes and episodes that were shared across each other from listeners. I even had one professor and MBA let me know that he has suggested this podcast as recommended listening based upon an episode about executive burnout. So appreciate that on the suggestion list for that particular university. So one of the reasons why this has been successful so far is all of our guests have shared with a degree of intimacy the insights of their own leadership, their own journeys or their own research. And that has taken both a fair degree of storytelling and vulnerability. So let's kick off there. Hit it! That's what I'm talking about. Wait! Okay now, from the beginning. We shall never surrender. I was sitting there kind of feeling that crushing weight and it was like okay, the consequences of me continuing to, to function the way that I am, that that's, that is not going to be good for me. You know, I'm likely to have some kind of physical problem. I'm certainly likely to have some, some severe mental you know, health issues you know, as a result of this. I was really beginning to feel that. And it presented as a form of crisis. The only logical response to crisis is radical thinking. It forced me to, to pivot my thinking almost immediately. Welcome to The Leadership Diet. I interview leaders and experts about ways to optimize leadership. What are useful habits and thinking patterns? What are the secrets to high-performing teams? And how do they continue to nurture their effectiveness day after day? In other words, what is their leadership diet? It's hard to go past 2020 without falling over this little topic called COVID-19. There have been so many conversations all over the world at a personal level, at a social level, at a family level, at a country level, and certainly at a leadership level. There's been so much impact in terms of how we lead, how we think about leadership. Everyone has a COVID story. 
Different cities around the world were in lockdown at different times. And here in Australia, where we record this podcast, Melbourne has been in lockdown for one of the most longest lockdowns in the world, has just come out of that in the last two weeks with extraordinary success in managing to not only flatten the curve, but flatten it beyond all expectations. So well done to everybody involved in the Melbourne treatment of COVID. But leadership has been put under the spotlight during 2020. Working from home, remote leadership, mental health impacts, motivation, trusting our teams that they can do the right job, learning a whole new vernacular called Zoom, Teams and everything else that goes with that. One of the most listened to episodes in 2020 for the Leadership Diet was an interview I did with Jessica Layden, who runs The Big Game in Sydney, who has a psychology background. And in that conversation, we discussed not just the the impact of COVID-19 on teams and and organizations, we also discussed executive burnout. In this segment, Jessica talks about her initial impressions of COVID-19 and the positive imp- impact it was having initially before the second wave kicked in and the emerging impact it is now having on teams and, and organizations. Is 2020 different to other years in the sense of it has COVID-19, anything that goes with that, accelerated the notion of burnout? I think COVID is the year that keeps on giving. It's um, <laughs> so many levels. So yeah. many levels. Yeah. I mean, what a perfect opportunity to explore the nuance of mental health. Um, COVID give, continues to give us, you know, opportunity after opportunity. This year has been phasic. I think for a lot of people, I would say that, um, albeit there are pockets where I have certain client organisations that I work in, there have been pockets where they've had increases in engagement, mm-hmm. largely to do with the organisation remaining successful. Um, not needing to make people redundant and people having the resources to work from home largely and preferring that, they would be in the minority across the organisations that I work in. For the vast majority of organisations, I think this year has posed um, a series of challenges. The first of them was, you know, when the the pre-isolation time where it was, you know, shock reaction, how do we bring together teams, but then how do we energise around that? So the energy around it, albeit was... Um, from a fear-based reaction, there was a positive energy around it that was um, clearly intentional. We thought we knew what we were here to do. I mean, yeah. we, were, we were here to beat this thing and to be energised so that we could keep our businesses open, so that we could keep people in jobs. So really purposeful. Yeah. And as we know, that's so cohesive. The next stage, I think, was when we got a bit used to it. We're all in isolation at this stage. But we know in, after the end of that sort of new three-ish month period, we all think we know that it's going to be better. So we can maintain, we can be stoic. We all did our best at, you know, pulling together. We're in this together. And a lot of innovation happened during that period Beautiful. as well, which is really exciting. Absolutely. And that I think was really energizing. We saw some wonderful things happen. We saw things that people had wanted to do for years happen in a flash. And we saw different people coming to the fore because senior execs were deployed in different ways. We saw different people on teams coming up. And so voices across the organization had an opportunity to be heard in different ways. So for a lot of people, and I'm talking about people who are employed at this stage, not not talking about the broader negative impacts of COVID, But in those workforces, there was that still sense of energy possibility. We're in it together. We can can get through this. Then, unfortunately, and I think you and I have talked about this a bit, 
we got to June 30, at least in Australia, where we'd been given the sense of, you know, a few months focus. That's right, financial year will kick in and the <laughs> world will reopen. I know. And then yeah. we all thought, gosh, you know, new financial year, 1st of July, it's all going to be great. You're going to have beaten COVID. We're going to feel so virtuous over it. It didn't work like that. And all of a sudden, we got into the sense of like, oh, my goodness, this could actually be the new reality. And we have no answer. We have no vaccine. We have no answer. We don't know what we're going to do. And what do you mean there might be a second wave? And then, lo and behold, here it comes. second wave. That topic with Jess, then we moved into executive burnout and the impact of executive burnout, the differences between burnout and a gradual increase of stress and the symptoms that she was looking for or helping her clients to observe in each other as stress and as tiredness and exhaustion was emerging amongst leaders before executive burnout or physical burnout actually appeared on the scene. So this topic here just talks about how to recognize symptoms in yourself as well as in your fellow colleagues. And that was for me when I first experienced with my clients a pervasive sense of stress tipping over into burnout. And so the stress previously was there, but it had been more energized and purposeful. And to burnout were quite specifically, um, there were clients who actually truly did burn out, who two were hospitalized. One was in the emergency ward. And this is across a fairly broad base of clients and people who – in our normal working life, we would see as people as being highly resilient, lots of great resources and strategies at their disposal, but the cumulative effect of trying to hold it together, of trying to model consistent, purposeful leadership to give people certainty, to give people a sense that they were going to be okay when there was no one there doing it for them. So that was when I started to see for senior executives the wheels getting wobbly and okay. then start to fall off. And what are, the, what are some of the symptoms that might yeah. show up just in advance of burnout? What I tend to notice is in a lead-up, if I deconstruct a couple of cases, this sense of everything is really, really important. Everything is equally important. Everything has to be done. And this overwhelming sense of it seems to be up to the individual to do it. So this, it's almost like you think about this over um, very much about the self at that stage where they're really looking to themselves to fix things. And that over-responsibility seems to be a factor, at least as I'm thinking about certain cases here, not necessarily globally. So over-responsibility and then it seems to become quite consuming, all the things that need to be done. And then there seems to be a tipping point. And that tipping point is quite sharp. And it could go from someone just saying one small thing, like even saying, you know, it's okay to need to have a break. And we give them permission to, in inverted commas, kind of fall apart. So that would be what I'd be looking for. I mean, people who are really overburdened, people who aren't sharing the load, leadership teams that aren't working as leadership teams, but we have a couple of people on the team who are the ones who are carrying the majority of the load, Mm -hmm. people wanting to create certainty for people in a space where there's not certainty rather than 
couching it in the sense of, look, none of us really know, but this is the decision that we're going with. Far more constructive for everyone rather than trying to deliver certainty. Also in parallel with people having to deliver a whole bunch of really difficult messaging to the business, to the market, to their investors. So all of that the accumulation of those things is what leads to that point. So, and for many leaders, of course, they're doing all that from their home oh, as with, they're trying to with manage the kids in the background. Exactly. You know. yeah, so. For anybody who hasn't listened to that episode and is interested, look up Jessica Layden uh, in The Leadership Diet and she talks more about executive burnout, but also some of the very simple and very useful treatments for executive burnout for yourself and indeed for your team. The notion of vulnerability is a topic that's often discussed in leadership journals, be it magazines, be it blogs, be it business books, be it academic um, articles and peer cited research. And for me, vulnerability is a really important part of humanity, first of all, but then specifically for leadership. It talks to or goes to the notion of I am not perfect. I make mistakes. And leaders who are able to embrace the notion that they are not perfect and they are open to and indeed do make mistakes, they have a better chance of minimizing their own sense of arrogance. They have a better chance of minimizing their sense of I need to be on show and be perfect at all times. They have a higher chance of learning and indeed the more open they are to seeking feedback on the mistakes that they have made, the more attractive they are to other people, not just to from a collaboration perspective, but from a leadership perspective. Stephen Keyes is the president of Asia Pacific, the Middle East and Africa for an enterprise software company called IFS. And in this very open and indeed vulnerable conversation, Stephen shared with us the first realization as he stepped into leadership roles across multiple geographies and countries and his realization for the first time that he could not carry on leading the way he had previously. Yeah, I certainly feel like prior to that moment, I had always labored under the opinion that I was supposed to have all the answers, that if I was the leader or the manager, that somehow I'm the one that's responsible for providing all the answers. I had to be the smartest guy in the room. I had to, to lead at all times by providing the answers, being the being always right, being always there, always present. There was one particular time, you know, when I first stepped into that leadership role, a new leadership role, stepping up to the group executive board and just the sheer volume of work that came down mm-hmm. and I was letting it all come onto me from above and I was and I was trying to deal with all the issues that were coming up from underneath me and it just was overwhelming. There's just the sheer volume and that sense of, you know, everything was, I was, I was probably micromanaging. I was, I was, it was highly centralized decision-making, just really just relying on my, myself. And I remember at least one clear experience. We were just there at McMahon's Point, uh, walking down Blues Point Road. I had to get out of the office. I could feel my heart rate going. I could feel I was feeling really hot and, and, and very stressed in the office. And so I went for a walk. And yeah, heart rate just kicking off and, and just trying to breathe normally and, and wondering what the heck was going on. And that, mm-hmm. that sense of just a crushing weight on my shoulders and a realization I just simply cannot continue in that way. I cannot continue to think that I can take all of that on myself and continue to be successful. That to me was a, was a, was a pretty uncomfortable moment, but an important one to, to then ultimately transition to a, to a different way of thinking. 
let's just clarify, you're a very fit, healthy man. You're a very active um, athlete. So the crushing sense of physicality you felt wasn't a cardiac type event. It was a stress-related pressure on myself, the way I'm thinking event. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I, I, I was a lot fitter then. Um, <laughs> Weren't we all, Steve? But you know, we, but I was. I was doing. We were doing the events. I'm proud. We did the. Uh, yeah, did the Hawksby Classic kayak event, and was doing ultra marathons and all sorts of things. And yeah, there's nothing wrong fitness wise, but yes, an, an emotional stress, a, a, a burden, and that rate was it was entirely stress related. That the heaviness of that sense of responsibility and obligation. Um, it was crushing mm-hmm. and 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 suddenly this this sense of i can't possibly can't possibly continue in that way and since then i've looked back and and i, and I realized that, that moment was a very important one there's a there's a wonderful quote and only when things look bleak do people get around to getting things done right but, but sometimes you have to really for people to change or for there to be any form of change within an individual and organization level you have to understand the consequences of doing nothing yeah. and to realize that 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 consequence is something that's so very very bad that you are compelled to think radically about how you might address your situation it it creates a sense of crisis and the only real response to a crisis is is radical thinking Likewise, Alan Tillich is another guest who shared his insights through a degree of vulnerability. In our our conversation with Alan early on in the Leadership Diet series, we discussed his transitions from his first CEO role into his second CEO role and the differences he had from the learnings taken from his first experience into the second experience. And in that conversation, we discussed with the benefit of hindsight, of course, what were his first six months like in his first CEO role? Alan was very open about that. A lot of people talk about what kind of start they need to make in terms of speed or focus. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. When you look back now and your first time in that role, how would you describe the start of of your CEO in in, in the way you took on that role? Well, I think it was an inglorious start. Inglorious. Inglorious. (laughs) It it was an inglorious start. And it was because I didn't really understand what was expected of me. So in my mind, I approached the job as, wow, this is a a fantastic opportunity, but it's a a significant step up. So I'm going to have to learn the ropes here and I'm going to have to uh, reacquaint myself with the the business, medical nutrition. Um, I'm going to have to learn about the people here. And once I have that information over time and build, that'll give me the confidence then to set the direction for for the business. So... When I say it was an inglorious start, another way of describing that was it was a slow start. Okay. And I think if I had uh, our area VP in uh, with us to here today, he would be saying, well, you know, I, my expectation is that you would have hit the, the ground running, that you would have actioned the changes much more quickly than, than you actually did, that you would have set the direction and, you know, build the momentum within the team far, far more quickly than what I actually did. Continuing the notion of vulnerability, Gillian Coots is a partner in the Potential Project, which is one of the world's most successful leadership organizations that specializes in helping leaders develop their impact through the practice of mindfulness. She has had a 
corporate career in sales, marketing, operations and strategy. And in this conversation, she shared with us how she fell into the practice of mindfulness during a very tough time of her life when she was a new mother who also had cancer. And someone suggested to her that now might have been a good time for her to practice meditating. Listen to her response. I had James, my son, and then just after he was born, I was diagnosed with breast cancer. So I kind of had that double slap to her head. One was becoming a parent, the other was having this, you know, disease. Wow. Emerged. And I, my answer to kind of the existential crisis that evolved from that, you know, the what the hell am I doing in my life and have I had a meaningful impact, all of that stuff, was I just had to go back to work, to work harder, get promoted faster so that I could create the human-centred organisations that I really saw the potential for there to be, like in the people that I worked with. And of course, you know, when you're in a publicly listed company that's deeply under pressure, you can imagine just how that actually worked out. So I'm back at work, I've got chemo brain up the wazoo, I've got a toddler under one arm and this big new job. And someone said to me, look, you seem a bit stressed out. (laughs) I'm like, wow. You serious? Thanks for noticing. They said, look, have you ever thought, have you ever thought of like, meditating or doing some mindfulness and I said have you ever sort of sticking it up your jacksy like that is not the kind of in the ply where you would say that exactly you probably used much more colorful words at the time at least privately but um it was really interesting because I um you know I've got a bit of a science background so my my I thought well what if I just did an experiment what if I did 10 minutes a day two weeks and just see what happens as a result I can you know I can do that and this is before the headspace type um, (coughs) programs came out so it was before that's that kind of space but there was a lot of research starting to emerge and, and you know Google was already doing it so there was a bit of that and um, so I've done my 10 minutes a day and I'm starting to feel more calm and in control, which is lovely. But what was really interesting is after two more weeks, so I said, right, I'll do another two weeks and of this experiment. And then my husband said to me, do you realise you're easier to live with? I thought, wow, that's really interesting because so are you. So that's interesting on many levels. In one sense, what a great gift he gave to you by giving you feedback, but also how courageous he was to, to, to say, say that. You know, with the, you know, we'd had a pretty tough time. Yeah. We had some other family pressures. So it wasn't, it, it was, um, it was needed. It was really needed. What was he noticing that made it in his eyes, you were easier to live with? I think I was less of a bitch. Right. <laughs> to be really I'm glad strange. you said that, not him. <laughs> I bet, but it was, um, I was less reactive. Right. So I was more able to bite my t- – at the time I probably would have described it as biting my tongue. Okay. I would describe it differently now. But it was yeah. – um, but I wasn't as reactive to the things that were really annoying me. Okay. So and, and so now you look back on that at that time <clears throat> and you, you're able to think that the practice of the mindfulness that you had started undertaking was allowing you to either – be less reactive, less angry, or able just to manage it in a more proactive sense. Okay. Yeah, I'm not sure that I was less angry at that okay. point. Okay, yeah. But I was noticing myself being angry and having just a little bit more space to choose what did I do next okay. as a result. I love those words that she taught us, Jackson up the Yazoo. I had many comments from various people around the world telling me, Don't know what that is. First time I've ever heard those words. But the beauty of vulnerability is that it helps leaders and indeed any of us to start learning. If we're open to 
hearing what other people have to say or, or realizing what we're doing, we have a chance to start learning. Revisiting the conversation with Gillian, she shared with us how she started practicing meditation or attention management, as she called it. And the impact it had both on her family life was quite profound, but also amongst board directors on a board that she sat on. Listen to this for feedback she got from a fellow board member and the the long-term impact it had for her in terms of her gravitas and her contribution as both an executive and a board director. But the thing that really got me very curious about the whole journey was um, so I kept going with this experiment and I, you know, I'm up to the end of month three and I've been doing the practice most days, not perfect, but most days. And as you said, I sat on a couple of boards. And so after a board meeting, one of the guys leaned over to me and said, look, uh, I don't know what's going on with you, but it's like you're suddenly smarter. And I'm like, in my head, I go, dude, that is not a thing that you say out loud, but thanks very much. So this, this is a, a board yeah. that you're sitting on and, and obviously a board being a hyper-governance and hyper-responsible entity mm. for any organisation. Mm. And he leans across to you and says, you've become smarter. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So how, how did you mindfully accept that compliment? <laughs> I got really curious. Yeah. Like, you know, I asked him, what was it that you see that's different? And it basically boiled down to that I talked more. And what I hadn't un- understood until that moment was... I, um, in that board context, was a bit of a diversity hire. So I'd started five years earlier. So I've um, now been on involved in that organisation for 15 years. But so I'd started reasonably young. And I was used to feeling like I had to have the perfect interjection before I would make a comment at the board table. Okay. And what that translated into was that I'd be so busy trying to get the perfect interjection that the conversation would move on. Got it. And I wouldn't speak at all. And so I I was contributing. It wasn't that I wasn't speaking at all, but I was living in my head. As opposed to listening to the conversation and really adding value. We hope you're enjoying this episode of The Leadership Diet. Feel free to hit the subscribe button on whatever podcast player you are listening to this on. Reviews on iTunes and Spotify are greatly appreciated. Let's go back to Stephen Keyes. I mentioned Stephen is Vice President for Asia Pac, the Middle East and Africa for IFS. And in this very honest and open conversation, I asked Stephen if he could cast his mind back to the kind of leadership he was exhibiting early in his career. And in his, in his own words, the nickname he had for him was the killer, i.e. he was a pretty tough leader to work for. The question was, looking back now, what was the impact of his leadership on the people around him? And then therefore, what does that mean for the overall impact he was having as a leader? Before we jump into how you how you developed and moved into a different way of thinking, if you're able to remember now, what were some of the impacts of your leadership at that point in time? I, you under stress, you under burden. How was that showing up to your team or to, to the folks around you? Uh, wow, that's a bit, <laughs> I'm not really proud of that, but uh, how is it presenting? Uh, angry, definitely angry. Definitely arrogant. I think mm. I was I was perceived as quite arrogant. I had a nickname. <laughs> I only learned about a few years later called uh, the killer. The killer. In, in German, the German word for the killer. Yeah, uh, yeah two quarters, and uh, you know that's it. Once you're that, once you're in the uh, in the bad, but that's it. You know, so don't get the wrong side of him. So can you imagine? 
you know, you think about how that affects other people then. Yeah. Don't get on the wrong side of them. Well, then you're not, they're not going to say things that challenge you. That if, even if you're plainly doing something wrong, no one's going to tell you, are they? There's another word that you and I have discussed over time. Indeed, we've laughed many times at this notion, but there's a word that was around you in that period, and I've never heard it since. It's called shitogram. What is that? <laughs> yeah, a shitogram is, uh, is is a little bit like if you've ever watched old uh, Division One football from England in the 70s, and uh, you see some of the defenders, the way they tackle, and they go in very, very hard. And there's a phrase you use, which is when you leave something in the tackle, you get the ball, but you definitely, definitely let the other player know that they've just been tackled. So it's up a little bit. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. So it's it's hard and it's firm, and it, yeah, right. it, it, it leaves someone know. And so a shitogram is. Uh, <laughs> is, a, is an email that's you know heavily laid and dripping with sarcasm uh, or spite uh, or you know it delivers a message and a lesson and it comes with a really really big giant slap uh, it hurts <laughs> yeah it hurts and it's designed to hurt and boy it feels good when you write them and you get all of that anger and stress and frustration out and all those types of things and it's it's um it's blame culture at its worst right it's just it's it's just terrible it's just terrible i used to be very good at them and and sometimes (laughs) i i confess i still write them and but then i've learned to i've learned to just stick them in draft and then delete them very good (laughs) yeah they don't serve any good the learning there is to shift your perspective from from the blame culture piece from always wanting to blame others if something's gone wrong though the reality is that in some way shape or form you as a leader haven't done something right and so now i try to shift my perspective from being a blamer to a curious problem solver what is it that i didn't articulate properly how is it that i failed to support that individual and what they were trying to do how else could i have addressed the situation there's a million questions i would want to ask of myself first before then seeking to ask questions Clearly, you don't arrive at that level of insight without pausing for introspection, without listening to feedback and without doing something different, because it's in the doing of something different. Do you fully appreciate the impact you were having previously? And indeed, Stephen, in his in his episode with us, shared a lot of the learnings he's had over his career and how he is now leading quite differently in, in his current role and the impact that's having both in a commercial sense, as well as through the front foundation that IFS has in support of its employees in Sri Lanka. If you're interested in how someone can move from a take-at-all-cost type leadership style that he had and indeed retain the commercial effectiveness that he still does, as well as embracing different style of leadership, the interview with Stephen's well worth listening to if you haven't done that before now. Going back to Alan Tillak, one of his biggest learnings he took into his second role, his second go at being a CEO was a very interesting and very unusual idea. He called it the Stop It Month. And this was an idea of helping an organization to get really clear on its priorities and helping an organization with very clear guidelines and boundaries, and most importantly, permission to stop doing stuff that wasn't of any value to the organization or to their clients. I, I launched this at one of the town halls and basically I said to the, to the team, we're doing lots and lots of work. 
So right throughout the organisation, no matter what function, people are doing lots of work, lots of hours. And I said, I want you to take time just to do a critical assessment of what it is that the work that you're doing. And if you don't think it's adding value, I want you to stop it. You want them to stop it? I want you to stop doing what you're doing if it's not adding value. Now, there are a couple of caveats here. Number one, I said, we cannot compromise the good governance of this business. I said, I'm absolutely committed as an individual that we, the results that we deliver are delivered in the right way. So we want to behave properly in terms of the way we address the market and how, the way we do business. So if it's not compromising good governance within the business and it doesn't have on a, fl- a flow-on effect to somebody else, as in I'm not going to do A, B and C, but that means that somebody else is picking up the load somewhere else. Uh, I, I said, just stop it. And so we did that for a month, and the results... So, so you, you announced this to the whole organisation? Exactly. What was the immediate reaction? Well, stunned silence, uh, I think. <laughs> stunned silence, because I, I don't think people fully understood. And I related a story to the organisation to try and get them to understand where my thinking was coming from. And I said in my uh, two roles previously, I said, I can still remember when I had my sales managers in for a reason, uh, sorry, for a meeting. And the uh, it was a, one of these rare occasions where they were pouring out their hearts and truly telling me what they thought. And they said, we're just so incredibly busy. It's just, you know, we're all overwhelmed. So my response to that was to say, completely understand I can empathise with you, but here's the reality. It doesn't matter whether you worked 168 hours a week, you would still be too busy. Mm-hmm. You will still have work to do. So I said we must focus on those things that are actually going to deliver a tangible impact mm-hmm. to the business and forget about those other things and actually become comfortable with the fact that you're not going to get everything done. Uh, and I said it's about priority setting and it's one of the hardest things to do, but that's what we need to do. And so that's what I was uh, then sharing with the Sandos business is let's set some priorities. And it is difficult to do. But I wanted to, to do something that was um, symbolic. And Wow, that, that, that's symbolic. That, that would grab everyone's attention. I mean, I mean what, what strikes me as you're talking is... You know, everywhere you go, everywhere you talk to, everything you read around, I'm being busy, somebody gives a wise advice of, well, stop doing something. What you did, though, was give a guideline going, if it's not adding any value, if it's wasting time, and within these caveats, as long as you adhere to the caveats, you've got full permission to just stop. Were you ever able to calculate how much time you saved by saying to people, stop doing it? So uh, we, we did a, a check-in after we did the, the stop month, and uh, we saved around 200 man-hours per month. Wow. So that's you know, almost 2,500 hours per, per year mm. for the organisation. And save doesn't necessarily mean we just stop working. We, we refocus that time elsewhere or... Um, On the things that matter. Things that matter. In lots of the work that I do with leadership teams and indeed with individual C-suite executives, one of the important 
and always insightful conversations I have is in a topic called stories of origin. And this is helping the leader to understand what parts of their life, be it childhood, be it teenage, be it university, be it early years in your career, be it the previous 10 years, but how have those experiences shaped you? What are the stories? What are the narratives? What are the belief patterns that have emerged from those experiences that shape you as a person and then therefore impact you as a leader? Paul Byrne is one of my favorite consultants all over the world and a good friend of mine lives in Amsterdam and is probably one of the most experienced transformational level consultants that works in Europe. And in this conversation, Paul shared with us his own origin story and how growing up in Boston with dyslexia, how that impacted him at a social level and how that impacted his view of his role in society and therefore the first 15 years, his role as a leader. These are those conversations that can go to the the wee hours in the morning if you let them. Um, But sort of, I think, you know, some of the more important points of mine are, you know, I grew up in, in the U.S. I've lived most of my professional life in Europe, but I actually grew up in Boston, sort of a working class suburb of Boston. And, you know, I think one of the most important influences for me was, you know, growing up with uh, dyslexia and, Mm -hmm. and probably ADD or, you know, any number of things. And at, at that time, and, you know, the 1970s in Boston and uh, in the kind of school I was at, um, you're just, the, the diagnosis was he's slow, right? you know, and you, and you tended to get sort of put in a, uh, a classroom, you, you know, for other slow kids. And that could be everything from someone with a slight, you know, learning disability uh, to, you know, uh, extreme autism, right? But it was kind of a way of, 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 taking you out of the mainstream. So you kind of don't slow things down. And, you know, some of my earlier memories are like not fitting in, Hmm. you know, I would say that that was, that was a theme. There was a sort of sense of where, where I was put wasn't maybe kind of intuitively. I knew it's not necessarily where I belonged, probably true for a lot of the people in that room, but, and, and I, I don't think I made any conscious choice about it, but as I reflect back, there was this sort of sense of, I need to keep my distance. Mm-hmm. You know, I need to not be too consumed by this world or I'll lose myself to mm-hmm. it, you know, and it was for the sake of a phenomenal sixth grade teacher, uh, Mr. Troy, who um, suffered uh, polio as a child and was this hulking, scary um, figure in the school. And, and he brought me back, you know, and so it's, 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 uh, you know, another amazing story of a teacher and, you know, these sort of angels on the path. But I think as a result, you know, part of the, the origin story is be careful about groups, you know, keep to yourself. The system uh, isn't there to help you. Right. It's there to be navigated, you know, and, and it's of course, you know, fast forward, whatever it is, 40 years or something, uh, or more, you know, it gives you a, a real sense of kind of systems thinking, right. Um, is what we'd call it today. But at the time it was more of a, you know, how does, how does a boy, uh, you know, in a big world, uh, figure out how to get through it, yeah. uh, without getting consumed by it, you know? Yeah. I mean, the, the irony is of course, as you said, fast forward, 40 years, whatever it is, you're now an expert in groups and in systems and in helping systems, you know, which is the one, the, the areas you were avoiding way back then. Well, I always, I always like to think that um, often the, the work you are uh, called to do in the world is the work 
you need to do for yourself, yeah. you know? And so of course the irony of, of focusing on teams and, and, and working with leaders around enhancing relationship for somebody who's struggled with being in relationship my whole life is, I mean, there's a certain poetic irony to, uh, you know, um, who, who better to advise you than me? Cause I've done it wrong every way you can. And, <laughs> yes, uh, right. and how funny that you're, <laughs> and how funny that you're asking me, you know, here's a 10 mistakes. I know you yeah, need exactly, to avoid. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, I, I like to think, yeah, yeah. I, like if anything else, I can be a cautionary tale for most leaders. <laughs> There's always something to gain. <laughs> Jumping across the ditch from Amsterdam to Copenhagen, Becky Morrison, who is a global executive leader with Leo Pharmaceuticals based out of Copenhagen. Becky shared with us her experience as an expat leader and the realization based on her experiences having worked in Australia, New Zealand, England, the Nordics, and in, of course, her home country of the United States of America, how learning through experience has helped her to understand approaching new assignments, be it in different countries or different levels of leadership, starting with humility becomes really, really important. In this very insightful and quite hilarious conversation, Becky shares with us the advice she gives to many other leaders when they are embarking on a new expat assignment. Yeah, and I began to ask, so I did that in the US as well, but I began to ask First, like when I engaged today, did I improve like the culture? Did I improve people's belief in the mission? And did I, did I improve their belief in their ability to do their jobs? <clears throat> Which is something I um, obviously worked on with my team in the U.S., but it wasn't as top of mind as it was in Australia. And part of that comes from the humility of knowing that expat rotations come and go, right? In, and people um, want to work for someone who is inspiring and they get along with. But at the end of the day, I, I, and this is what I tell uh, folks that are taking on their expat assignments and they call me for advice. And I say, just remember, like go in with humility. Just remember that half the people are going to be excited you're there and the other half are going to look at you and think in their head, I can hold my breath longer than you're going to be here. <laughs> and in fact, some of that is true. So it changes your perspective about what is the legacy that you're helping the organization build, not necessarily for me as a person or what can I tick off in my resume. learning is important and indeed without learning none of us can grow in our leadership roles but what are some of the things leaders have done differently well in all in each of our episodes we explore that and Paul Byrne who you met earlier from Amsterdam he shares with us what he calls inescapable questions how does he help use how does he help leaders by using profound questions that will shake them out of their thinking, their belief patterns, and force into a different behavior. Yeah. So I know you talk about the idea of inescapable questions as a kind of a precursor to the unlocking move, i.e. asking a question that can't hide from puts you into the place where this unlocking move kind of emerges or becomes more obvious. Can you tell us more about that? Uh, yeah. So th these are sort of the questions that kind of, they haunt you. 
you know, it's sort of, you can't unask it, Yeah. you know, yeah. and you think to yourself like, you know, damn that person for, you know. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, for me, they, they tend to sound things like up until now, rather, um, what are you now unwilling to tolerate in your life? The reason I think of it as sort of an inescapable question is it's, it's, I mean, we all tolerate things in our lives and like appropriately, like we have to live in a society and with people. And so part of that is, you know, you probably call it compromise. Um, and there's probably also something closer to the edge of things that, you know, for the last 30 years, this is what I've tolerated yeah. is me playing small or this being this way. And actually I'm noticing I'm not willing to tolerate it any longer. I don't know what to do about that. And I'm actually maybe even scared of what the repercussions could be. Um, but this idea of um, refusing to tolerate either my own inaction or, 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 or situations, I think that that's a big one. I mean, I think it's, it's, it's certainly an apropos one now, I mean, globally, but certainly in my home country in terms of um, racial justice and, and, and this sort of sense of, you know, how have systems and individuals uh, tolerated a set of conditions that they say they don't want and yet are uh, in very real ways, part of what embeds it. Right. And yeah. so, um, yeah, how do, how do I tolerate the thing uh, that I say I don't want, but actually, you know, either intentionally or unintentionally, um, contribute to and, yeah. and, and, um, yeah, so th those, those would be sort of those, those kinds of questions. And, One of the most important and I would suggest most common coaching topic for leaders of all levels, be it CEO down to first time leaders, is the notion of imposter syndrome, i.e. how do we as human beings second guess ourselves and use a degree of fear or concern to hamper or hinder our own effectiveness. Probably the most, if not one of the most, downloaded and listened to episodes of this whole series was this one with Becky Morrison, who you met earlier. But the section that got most commentary was her conversation on her own understanding and development of her degree of imposter syndrome over her career. And she shares a fabulous technique that she learned from improvisational theatre to help her not only appreciate the parts of herself that were questioning her own ability and the benefits that came from that actual questioning. As she got more experience and developed her own wisdom, she allowed the character to develop but not dominate. Given the roles you've had and the role that you're about to move to, I would imagine that you are far from someone who's got imposter syndrome. You're extraordinarily confident, but the way you're laughing at me at the screen now to suggest maybe I'm wrong. <laughs> what, Every what, single day. So it used to show up. It used to show up in um, doubting myself, um, waiting and probably being one of the last to offer insights or opinions. Uh, I think it as well, if I, if I can be honest with myself, I don't, I don't think I probably early on in, in my career fought for things as hard as I should have. Uh, when I was passionate about them. Um, I always figured someone else must have an insight that's better than mine. And that's why we're making a different decision or that's why they don't, they're not agreeing with my position. 
But as I've gotten uh, more experience, and, and I do think a little bit older, um, I've harnessed, it's still there for sure, but I've harnessed it in a different way. You know, there's this this concept in leadership and, and in improv, and you know, I have an improv background, which is about like, let the character be there, but just manage the character, right? Just don't let the character kind of be whimsy and flit and flat all over the stage. You got to let the character be there, but manage it. So in a sense, that's what I've done with my imposter syndrome. It's like, it allows me to pause and reflect and be humble and to listen hard just to make sure I'm not missing something, but I don't let it get, I don't let it carry me away anymore and create kind of the self-talk around someone must be smarter than me in the room. Uh, someone has more experience. And so they see the situation more clearly than I. Um, so it's about for me kind of harnessing that energy to enable me to um, still grow and be confident as a leader, but um, making sure I'm listening hard and learning, always learning. Did you give that character a name or a persona? Does it matter of interest? You did yeah. not. I did not, but maybe I should have not <laughs> said that. <laughs> I wonder what you'd call it now. <laughs> but did they, they, you know, what's lovely about what you said there is there's, there's lots of, um, I would say, less than useful books written about how do you get rid of that imposter syndrome. And, and I don't think it's possible. But what I love about you is yeah. you just said, well, it's a character. Let the character be there and learn from the character. So it's forced you to listen mm-hmm. deep and and to, and I would imagine then that's taught you to listen for the nuggets that other people aren't hearing or or whatever which wisdom then emerges from that yeah. so it's an understanding yeah. that's there to serve you not not getting in your way Moving on to a very different area we discussed the ideas of complexity chaos theory and orders of thinking with Dr. Josie McLean and Dr. Paul Lawrence over the series. Paul gave us a great insight into the ideas of first order thinking and second order thinking. And in doing so, he he used COVID-19 to explain how different leaders who view the world through different levels of thinking would approach how they might treat and tackle the issues of COVID-19. In this clip here, we listen to Paul describing what a leader, indeed in this case, a government leader, might tackle a pandemic like COVID-19 if they're viewing the world through a second order lens of leadership. The the second order perspective says, yes, the organisation is a machine, but its functioning is so complicated, we can't hope to really understand what's going on here. So it's almost like a black box theory. It's a machine, but it's like, you know, the black box record and an aeroplane. It's too hard to even work out how this thing works, right? Um, so, but it, it, so, so we need to, the best we're going to be able to do here is to come up with a hypothesis as to how the system is working. And, and we appreciate uh, the subjectivity of our own perspective. That, that's another fundamental aspect of second order thinking we know that we are not objective creatures that we are subjective and so we're only going to come up with a really good hypothesis if we get a number of different people all looking through their own different lenses to come together and from that then we'll, we'll get a, a, a pretty good hypothesis that we can go and test by kind of do learn do learn do that would be a second order hypothesis so with with covid again uh, first thing I'm going to do as the world leader is I'm going to ring up Singapore and, and, and wherever else, mostly in Southeast Asia, I think, and say, you've done this before. What did you do? 
Help me understand what happened in your country. Help me understand what you did, because I'm really interested to know. Um, I might be, in, even in my own country, I might ring around the other, in Australia, I'll ring around the other states and say, how is this occurring to you? So that, that's not a first order way of doing things. The first order way of doing things is, this is a, comp- this is a really complicated thing, but I, as my definition of myself as a leader is I need to know the answer. And you look at the behaviour of some world leaders, some of these are a bit obvious, did they go reaching out to other countries? To, no, they didn't. Shut the doors. They shut the doors and they said, we will work this out with our experts and started pointing the fingers at other. You know, and it got very, you know, finger pointing in. That's not a second order perspective. of managing change and indeed pivoting is a topic that has been discussed ad nauseum, I would have thought, over 2020, and indeed one of the most important topics to keep discussing because we have learned so much about change and about rapid change this year than I suspect we have learned in a whole lifetime. Indeed, the whole acronym of VUCA and the ideas of ambiguity have been fully lived out in 2020. In this segment, Paul Lawrence, who wrote a whole book about change leadership, discusses the idea of how change really happens in an organization and how leaders who are open to and embrace the idea of dialogue have had in 2020 and indeed in general have a far more successful in this in this conversation, Paul Lawrence discusses the idea of change leadership and his research and his books on this topic suggest that leaders who embrace dialogue have a far higher chance of successful change leadership than those who take a mechanistic approach to change. So the, the first three ways of thinking are quite mechanistic because they're saying, you know, put crudely, the, the, the world operates like a, like a really an engine, either a simple engine or an engine that's too difficult to understand, but it's still an engine. Well, complexity theory says that's not actually how change happens. What happens with change is people, they make meaning of stuff. So the, the example I tend to use, because it was real and it's just a, a good one, I think, is when I was doing a coaching skills program at this organisation and, and at the lunch break, we were all out there in the sort of kitchen, and, um, and someone said, because this is what they're all talking about. An email had come out that morning, and and it had said um, something along the lines of, "Your, I know we said that everyone would be getting a fifteen percent pay rise. It's now going to be twelve percent." Oops. Yeah, but it's not a big number, right? I'm going fifteen, twelve, but then that's just me. So fifteen, twelve. So now over here, um, as you point to your right, as I point to my right, there's a group going. I'm seriously pissed off about this. You know, it's like, this is a matter of principle. They said 15% no matter what. If you say that, you have to stick to it. If, you, if that wasn't the case, then don't say it. So this is a matter of principle. There's a group over here that are going, pointing to the left, there's a group over here that are going, this is so cool because we're, this organisation is not commercial enough. This, this, this whole thing about we can't afford to pay 15, we're going to pay 12, that's the lesson. We just need to, everybody needs to understand that. Over there, pointing forward, there's another group that goes 12%, 15%. Who cares? That's 500 bucks. I mean, I'm not going to get worried about that. So you had all these, you, this is different another example of yeah. different populations and they're talking to each other and out of that kind of collective process comes different meanings. And then, and, and 
And then what happens when all of those views come together? Who knows? It's going to be somewhat mysterious. And if I'm only looking at what's happening at the high level and I see this mysterious random thing, I go, that's really random. Where did that come from? Mm -hmm. The only way I get, but it's not random. Mm -hmm. It's actually, but to understand it, I've got to go and understand what's happening at the local level. So change emerges from these conversations that are happening in the in out there all over the all over the organization and then what emerges as an overall action is is can be somewhat mysterious now if i'm if i'm looking at life through a first order lens or even a second order lens as a member of the senior exec team i'm going that makes no sense what just happened does obviously why didn't they just take the message and logical rational do it well they're resistant to change you know you hear that phrase a lot right oh they're a bit stupid um, and then you say to people well that's not how change works Here has, here's how change works you do not get to control outcomes that is the scary bit you do not get to control outcomes and then people say well so what's my job as a leader I just kind of yeah, it's, right. it's all, it all just happens anyway no well, because the way change works is it's an emergence of all of those conversations that are happening all over the organisation. You can influence those conversations. You have to be in conversation. You have to be get listening. in conversation. And that, again, there's the control bit. The other bit that this really challenges is the leader who says, I only talk to my direct reports because if I go and talk to the people below, then I'm challenging their authority. No. And I remember this is what one of the leaders said in the leading change thing. He said, no, 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 no. I go and talk to people all over the organisation but I'm just careful about what I talk about. I don't yeah. do anything to challenge their authority, but I go and listen and speak. Listen and see and listen. Yeah. Yeah. To finish off this episode, I want to visit healthcare. COVID-19 has been regularly discussed and how organizations and teams have been pivoting. But of all sectors, healthcare has been the one that has been most impacted at a society level, at a social level, at a country level, and of course, at an organizational level. Dr. Dan Fleming is a head of ethics and mission at the St. Vincent's Hospital Group in Australia, a very successful and long-standing organization that was set up by some Irish nuns way back in the 1800s. And of course, as an organization, have had previous experiences with different pandemics, including the Spanish flu and HIV. In a great conversation, Dan posed what he calls the question for now in terms of how do we not forget, how do we structure our memories to learn at an organizational level the lessons taken from this year. And he poses a fantastic quotation which has been fed back to me from many listeners over the last few months, which is when times are exceptional, our core principles should not be. Over to Dan Fleming. And then I think that there are a whole bunch of learnings that across all our organizations have arisen that are worth us reflecting deeply on what they mean for our leadership going forward. And this might be political leadership or business leadership or healthcare leadership or even in personal life. But one of them is that we, we've realized, I think, in a, in a much more salient way how we're all entrusted to one another. Who would have thought that the act of washing one's hands was actually a moral action. Yes, yes, right. Indeed. But, but Indeed. haven't we learned that this is this is essential in protecting ourselves and one another or masking up or, you know, all of these things. But the second one is, even though we all have our personal responsibilities in this space and that's serious, we're not all responsible for everything. I think we've all had this sense uh, that we've been slightly out of control. I mean, and I mean, I imagine for some of your listeners 
pod who are, are used to being in situations where they can exert real influence and navigate the ship that we found ourselves in troublesome waters with the engine broken and the sails down and uh, a hole in the hull kind of thing. And in context like that, it's really worth reflecting on the decisions that aren't ours to make. You know, no individual could close the borders, for example. Yeah. It really brought home the fallacy of we are in control and it really yes. underlines the the wisdom of at best you're in control of your reaction when you're conscious yes. of it. <laughs> yeah. And that's it. <laughs> But what strikes me more and more is you, either overtly or by default, the organization has leaned back into its original mission and its original set of values to help guide it. And as you said, there's a whole history in the organization. This is not the first pandemic. I love what you said there. There's a whole history here that you're able to learn from. My question then is, going forward, how do you, what's your view of organizational values in the post-pandemic world, i.e. what are we learning around organizational values or organizational missions that can help steer us as we're making difficult decisions? Yeah, what a wonderful question. And, and really, this is the question for now, isn't it? Yeah. This is what we're all wrestling with now. I had a haunting discussion with a, a, a dear cousin over in uh, New Zealand. Uh, it was a couple of months ago now. It was before they had this second weird little blip where they had some COVID infection. So New Zealand was basically COVID free, as your listeners would know. We were right in the middle of our second lockdown here in Melbourne. And she said to me, Dan, we forgot about the pandemic so quickly. We forgot about it so quickly. Everything snapped back to the way it was. And it haunted me at that moment in time because I thought, gosh, we're learning so many leadership lessons now and so many ethics lessons now. What a tragedy if things just snapped back and we forgot all those, those yeah. things. So I think the question is essential for all of us to be grappling with at the moment and yeah. taking the time to, to grapple with. For what it's worth, for my, my thoughts, I think our to put it crudely, true colors have been shown during this time. Yeah. So our, our systems and the brokenness of our systems and their imperfections and their gaps have been shown and we have to hone in on that and look at what corrections can be made with a commitment to the value of all in our community. So that that's one thing. The second thing is there's a, a lovely old ethics principle that in contrast to uh, some of the rhetoric that floats around that these times are so exceptional that we need to change the way we, we think and we operate and so on, the principle says actually it's, it's when times are exceptional that our core principles should not be. When times, even though the circumstances might be challenging or extreme, our principles aren't. Our principles, it's, it's in times like these that we should uphold them most of all. And if we find them lacking, it might mean we've got the wrong, wrong principles. Finally, as we come to the end of this episode and the end of 2020, I want to thank you a few people for helping take this passion project out of my ideas in my head and into the stratosphere of podcasting around the world. Kevin Best and Bruce Barnett, who helped create the initial soundtrack and ideas for the podcast, have been a great help. Sonia, who is the producer of all of these, who helps organize all of our guests and make sure everything happens on time. Vernon Song from Flow, who is the digital marketer of our websites. Darcy, who does a lot of the production post-editing. Our guests, 
Some of you have heard them today and some of you will be downloading other episodes that we haven't spoke about today. And most importantly, the listeners, thank you all for your regular sharing, your recommending of this podcast to other people, and indeed the feedback you send me via the websites or via emails. Much, much appreciated. Have a great end of the year. Have a big rest. And we look forward to returning with season two in February 2021. Thank you for listening to another episode of The Leadership Diet. We hope you enjoyed it. Head over to theleadershipdiet.com where you can subscribe to the podcast, to our blog, retrieve a whole range of resources that we talk about in each episode. And if you are visual, a bit like myself, there are a range of videos sitting in our YouTube channel that you might find helpful. If you're enjoying all this, a review on iTunes or Spotify would be much appreciated. See you next time.